we ask you to bless Pastor Landon, Lord, as he brings the word. God, open our hearts and our minds to receive what the Holy Spirit would have to say to us today. In Jesus' name. And the church said, amen. Amen. Yeah. Okay. If you have your Bibles, you can open them up today. We're going to finish out our Ephesians series. We're going to finish it off with Ephesians chapter 6. So if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn there. If you have access to one, flip there or however you say it. Pull it up on your phone. Uh, it's always cool to just see it. Again, don't just listen to what I say, but read it and make sure I'm not just making stuff up. So turn, your, turn to your Bible, Ephesians 6. Uh, I am sad to stop studying this book. Uh, it's been so awesome just to dive in and look and see. Of all the packed truth into these six short chapters, uh, I've felt like it's been almost like a Christianity 101 study, just coming back and laying the foundations again. Um, I'm thankful to close the book out. Pastor Ron wanted me to mention that he uh, is in San Antonio, Texas right now. Uh, he is on the board for Pastor Daniel Villarreal's church. Uh, if you know Pastor Daniel, he's a friend of Christian life. Uh, but he's gone there to minister to the church and to Pastor Daniel. Um, and so he is there. And we are here. We're going to study Ephesians 6. So let me just recap. I can imagine with the way things go, you maybe have missed a Sunday or two. Um, so maybe you missed one of the chapters. Let me just recap briefly what we have covered so far. And so in chapters 1 through 3, we basically can summarize those chapters by just stating that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus. Saved by grace through faith in Christ. And as a result of being saved, we are made into a new body of believers, a unified body. I was joking with Robert Collier before church. He really appreciated that the, the church is attempting to unify. We used to have five churches. Now we have just three churches, and we're attempting to unify into one church. So <laughs> thanks for that, Robert. <laughs> So next Sunday, we're just going to have one single row <laughs> to be one church. But seriously, in the book of Ephesians, it, Paul is shouting, we're one. We're not five. We're not three. We're not two. We're one. It's not Jew and Gentile. It's one. It's not male or female, slave or free. We're all one. And we have equal value in the eyes of God if we are in Christ. So that's chapters one through three. But then chapters 4 and 5 stress the idea that we are to live in our new life in Christ and imitate God. Again, it's not just a prayer you prayed when you were three and then you live like however you want the rest of your life. You checked, you know, your hell insurance. That's not how it works. It is a you are saved free gift. But as a result of that salvation, you live differently and now it's, it's a progress. We are all a work in progress by the Spirit. It's the term 
a sanctification. We are slowly but surely being restored and made into the image of Jesus. But it is a result that it's a, our lives look different as a result of our salvation. And so Ephesians 4 and 5 stress this idea. And, and while at the same time of pursuing Jesus, we reject thinking and living like the world. And we see that Christians are called to a higher standard of living in every context we belong to, like our marriages, like Pastor Ron hit on last week. And all of that brings us to today. So if you've been in church a while, when, when you hear Ephesians 6, most likely you automatically think the armor of God. And while I will touch on the armor of God, I want to cover what people kind of skip to. The first half of Ephesians 6, I really felt led by the Spirit to zone in on the first part, and then we will get to the armor of God. And so a phrase that I like to say, and maybe you've never heard it before, it's just a phrase that I've adopted, and I will continue to say over and over and over, hoping that maybe you say the same phrase. But a phrase that I like to say is that pertaining to families here at Christian Life, is that I want to help families have healthy homes that glorify God. Healthy homes for the glory of God. That's what I feel like a part of what I'm supposed to do while I'm here at Christian Life, is to help you as husbands and wives, as mamas and daddies, as even the kids, even high schoolers, college students, whatever context you belong to while living in your home, I want to help you have a healthy home for the glory of God. That's our heart here at Christian Life. Healthy marriages lead to healthy kids. Healthy kids lead to healthy home. When everybody is healthy for the glory of God, it's just the way that God designed it to be. And this is what we are seeing Paul address in the end of Ephesians 5, going into the beginning of Ephesians 6, he's speaking into this idea. This isn't a new original phrase. This was the Apostle Paul's motto, healthy homes for the glory of God, living by God's design, operating in the roles and the ways that God intended, husbands, wives, parents, kids, all operating in the way God designed, and that actually leads to a healthy home. And that's what we're going to study today. So, just to kind of set the context, in chapter 5, towards the end, Paul addresses, again, husbands and wives and how Christian marriages are to look different than maybe even the way of the world and how the husband and the wife, they are equal in value, equal in value, different in roles. They have different roles, but equal in value. And, and the Apostle Paul, again, by the Spirit of God, is speaking into this. This is why he says things, wives, you should submit to your husband and follow their leadership. This is the roles to play. While at the same time, husbands should be worthy of submission by honoring their wives like Christ loves his church. If husbands love their wives like Christ loves the church, just think about it. How did Christ love the church? He served the church. He laid his life down. He laid down his preferences for the church. He served. But he took leadership when he needed to. Again, husbands, 
should be the best servant leaders in the home. And wives shouldn't begrudgingly submit or just, ugh. But they should take gladness and, ah, I get to follow my husband's leadership. Praise the Lord for his leadership. That's the heart. That equals a healthy home filled with joy. And so Paul is addressing this in marriages. And again, it's in that time, in that context, and it still applies today in 2023. And so Paul's addressing marriages, and then he keeps it going by speaking into the parent-children relationship. You see, I did a good job there. I wanted to keep going into that point, but I used self-control, and I'm sticking to the point, trying to get better. <laughs> but Paul speaks to husbands and wives. Now he speaks to parent and kids relationship. And so raise your hand if you have parents. <laughs> okay. Most of us, <laughs> all of us have parents. <laughs> we were all born. We all have parents, and then a few of us have kids. And so what this does is this pertains to all of us. So let's read it. Verse 1. Children, children, if you're in the room, most are not in the room, but children, high schoolers, middle schoolers, elementary, all the children, obey your parents in the Lord. For this is right. Verse 2, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Verse 4, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. It's the first four verses of Ephesians 6. And these verses, I just want to spend some time on. So I have a few thoughts on these verses. Number one is that we should value and care for children. We should value and care for children. You may not understand this, but just the fact that Paul addresses children in the letter and, and just the fact that he addresses them at all was countercultural. Kids were second class. Kids were burdens. Kids were overlooked mostly in that society. But just the fact that he addresses children is a big deal. But then, okay, he, he addresses children. But a secondary thing is just the fact that he doesn't just address boys demonstrates the countercultural value the early church placed on children as a whole, both boys and girls. Because in that time, in that culture, especially in the city of Ephesus, girls were valued less. They were less, less valued than boys were. But again, that was still not saying much because babies in general in that time would often be found in the trash. They would be found and turned into gladiators, working slaves or prostitutes. And these babies were considered unwanted and inconveniences so they were just thrown in the trash. And guess who were the predominant ones to come along and find a baby and take them in and raise them as their own? Guess who were the ones to predominantly do that? The church. The believers in Jesus. Which some argue, fun fact, but some argue that because of that, it's actually what led to the explosion of Christianity 
post, you know, when Jesus ascends, you got 60, 70, 80, 90 AD. It's because all these babies were found in the dumps and the trash. And guess who raised them? Christian parents. And they did a good job. And babies don't stay babies. They grow up. They become young adults. They become the predominant generation. And guess what? They were mostly Christian because all those babies were rescued by believers and raised in a healthy home that glorifies God. And it impacted society. Fun fact. There you go. That was free. (laughs) Believers were the ones to rescue these kids. And so it just, all this does is show you that the early church placed a value on kids. They're not burdens. They're not second class. They're a blessing. And it remains the same stance of believers in Christ. Children are a blessing. We should value them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer once said that it's from God that parents receive their children, and it is to God that they in turn ought to lead them. And here's the cool part. If you belong to Christian life, you belong to family. And so I know when I automatically speak to parents, those who don't have kids of their own, you, you've, I'm not talking to you. Yes, I am talking to you. You belong to Christian Life Church. We're in this together. We're in this together. And even if you don't have your own biological kids, if you are in this church family, you by extension do have kids. I know me and my wife, Tara, we have four kids and we have several friends in our circle that don't have kids of their own, yet they, they go above and beyond for our own kids. I mean, just this morning, I'm preaching, Tara's leading worship, we have four kids, we get to church, and you didn't see it, but before church, Nina was toting miles around, letting him help her put stuff, Emily was here holding Haven, we, we need our circle of people, we legitimately could not do ministry without our circle of people. And a lot of our circle treat our kids as their own. That's church family. If you have kids, this is your church. We, we love kids. And so we value them. And so I'm speaking a lot to biological kids. Can I also add too, again, from the picture we see in the early church, a part of valuing and caring for kids involves supporting foster care and adoption and supporting even kids in our own community that live in less fortunate circumstances. If the Spirit of God leads you towards an aspect of fostering or adopting, then I pray obey the Spirit's leading. If your heart is burdened towards kids in our community, maybe there's a single mom that barely gets by and she has lots of kids. Or maybe there's families that live in non-ideal circumstances and serve them and serve them, love them, play with them. The church has always been a front runner in caring for kids in all contexts. Amen. I think of Gray Tucker sitting somewhere. There you are. I think of Gray. If you don't know Gray, meet Gray. He's awesome. But Gray is a football coach of the Murfreesboro Knights program. And and these are mostly a lot of kids that don't have a steady father figure in their life. And they mostly live in non-ideal home circumstances. 
But when grace shows up, week after week, practice and games, the Lord uses him to, by the grace of God, paint a different picture of what a godly man looks like. And it's all just being a football coach. I mean, I went to the Oakland-Riverdale game a couple weeks ago with Gray, and he showed up with like 10 kids. I don't know the exact number, but they brought a busload of kids. And it was funny watching the panic on his face. As soon as all the kids get there, they all, I'm like, I have four and I can't keep up. Good luck. I mean, there was one part, one of the kids were like on the field and we didn't know how he got there, but, <laughs> but I think they all got home safe. <laughs> but that's ministry. That's ministry. That's valuing and caring for kids. And the church should always and forever be marked by that kind of ministry. And we're proud of what you do, Gray. Yeah. That's number one. Number two is that we should set a Christ-centered example for kids. So this obviously pertains a lot to parents, but again, it can pertain to all of us that interact with kids in some way. But let me speak specifically to mamas and daddies for a minute. Verse 4 says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. The word there for fathers, and sometimes in the Bible it'll say sons, but really it could be sons and daughters. This was intentionally written to fathers. Of course, the main principles can apply to moms too. So fathers and mothers with a heavy emphasis on dads, we are called to refrain from provoking our kids to anger and bring them up in the way of God. So what's the best way to help kids grow in the ways of Jesus? By setting the example, modeling it, living it out, in front of them. Kids are affected by what you say, but I would argue they are more affected than to what you do. So you can say what you want, but it's what you do that carries a lot of weight. And the culture in your home isn't set by what you say, though obviously it includes that. It's really set by what you do. And if you're modeling Christ and modeling reading the word and living out the word and praying with your kids and you are setting an example worth following. Tony Merida says this in his commentary. It's a long one. Hang in there, buckle up, stay with me, don't check out, but it's worth reading. So let me read what he says about this chapter. Tony says, children are observing their parents' own relationship to the Lord. They are watching them pray study the Bible, and worship. They know if their parents are dazzled by God's grace or not. Children are observing how their parents value the church. They are watching how their parents are speaking truth lovingly, working honestly, giving generously, encouraging others properly, putting away bitterness and anger repentantly, and forgiving one another Christianly. The first picture, please hear this, the first picture of God children receive is from their parents. They will get a sense of authority, love, and protection from their parents. As they see and treasure this example, it will inevitably 
point them away from the parents to the ultimate father. Even when you fail to reflect God before your children, you should teach them how to repent and receive grace from God. Your example is influential. And he closes by saying, what are they seeing? Are they learning to value mission more than money? Faithfulness to God over career success? Are they learning humility and repentance or hypocrisy? They are also forming their view of marriage based on their parents' marriage. Give them a compelling vision. Remember, you are giving your children a picture of the gospel as well as demonstrating how husbands and wives love each other. One of the best things you can do as a parent is love your spouse and stay together. Both and. I love that. There's so much you could unpack there, but take it in. We as parents, we get to model Christ for our kids. And if there's one aspect of that that I want to restate, it's that parents, we fail. <sighs> raise your hand if you've ever failed your kids. Just go ahead and raise it high. Yeah, don't put it down. Just raise it up. Raise it up. Okay, look around the room. Don't drop your hand. Look around. <sighs> I'm not the only one. <laughs> now, I'm not saying that to make light and to excuse or justify, but what I am doing is we raise our hands to, because the enemy gets in your head and says, you're the only one. You're the only one that yelled at your kids. You're the only one that lost your cool. But parents, we screw up a lot. We get heated. We get overwhelmed. We say things. We fail to say things. This does not make you a bad parent, but it means you're a fallen, finite human with a capacity. We shouldn't hide our need from, for grace from our kids. We should humbly admit to them when we're wrong. See, that's, that's the difference. Is we don't just shrug it off or act like it wasn't. A, I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've sat down with my kids. I, I messed up. Will you forgive me for fill in the blank? We need grace. But in fact, I would argue that when we do that with our kids, we are modeling the Christian way in a way that you just can't in any other context. And so parents, we should live a life and model it for our kids. But even when we fall, even when we fail, our kids need to see that when we fail in obedience, praise the Lord for grace. Because what we're modeling is though we fail in obedience, there is a God that gives us grace who died in our place on the cross and he can forgive us for our shortcomings. And so we can model that in our home, painting a picture of what their life with Christ can be like. Not a performance-based, be perfect before you come to God. It's a grace-filled home culture. Hopefully that makes sense. If there's a mission field that we are called to reach, and yes, they live in other countries. Yes, we're, we're trying to reach them, the Wolof and the Malinke Jula, all these people groups. But I would argue, don't overlook the mission field that is predominantly in the back of the building and over in the house, or they're sitting next to you as a high schooler or a college student. 
There is a mission field that we are called to reach. And again, you've heard it a lot. At this church, we believe in reaching that next generation. And it starts with healthy homes that glorify God. And I'll say it again before I move on. Please let this sink down deep. Parents, church family, teachers, coaches, and all those in between, what you say loses weight when it doesn't line up with what you do. What you say loses weight when it doesn't line up with what you do. So not just, don't just say, but model Christ with humility and reverence. Amen. Okay, number three. Again, our heart is to see healthy homes for the glory of God. So the third point is this, that parents should be the main disciplers of their kids. Parents should be the main disciplers of their kids. My computer tried to tell me disciplers is not a real word, but I'm making it one. <laughs> parents should be the main disciplers of their kids. Me and my computer, we have a love-hate relationship. Sometimes I'll type a word and my computer's like, I don't even know what you're going for there, but disciplers was on purpose. Okay. Stay focused. <laughs> so read verse four again. Fathers, heavy emphasis on dads, but includes moms too. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Don't provoke kids towards anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Parents should view themselves as the main disciplers of their kids. It's not the pastor's job. We did not hire, we did not hire a kids director to do this for you. Let that sink in. We did not hire a church staff or we don't have volunteers so that you don't have to do this. You are the main disciplers of your kids. And that is a heavy job. But it's not a job that you can punt or contract out to anyone else. It's just not going to now. You can have supplemental voices. We can come alongside you. We can support you. We can affirm what you're saying already, but don't punt discipling your kids to others. It's not the pastor's job. It's not the daycare's job. It's not the teacher's job. It's not the coach's job. It's not the grandparent's job. It's not even the TV's job. All of those things can be a supplemental to come alongside of you, but the primary responsibility of discipling your kids is on you. Amen. And that is a heavy weight. But praise the Lord that it's the Lord asking you to do that. He, he's with you. He can strengthen you. Again, it grieves my heart to see kids viewed as burdens. Not, not just should parents be the main disciplers of their kids. I mean, I would go as far as to say parents should be the main ones raising their kids. To come alongside and they're not burdens, they're a blessing, they're gifts from God. And they are a handful. They can push your buttons. They make wrong decisions, but still, children are a blessing. 
Can I plead with you, Christian Life Church, that the predominant way of society is the opposite of everything I'm saying? Let's be countercultural just in our homes. You actually can stiff arm Satan, and what I like is you can throw a nice right hook in Satan's mouth by discipling your kids. He hates that. My journey group, we've talked a lot about this over this semester, and it's been such a blessing to see men in my journey group just basically say that they are committed to pastoring their own homes. That yes, they could go, we had like this list, you could go into government and education and media and all these, the business place, but everybody unanimously in my journey group said those things are awesome, but it's my home. My home has my heart, and that's where I want to be. That's countercultural. Yeah. And so let it start with us. Again, I know there's tons of people crushing it that go to the Experience Church or other churches in the nation or the world, but let's keep throwing punches to the enemy by living lives and having healthy homes for the glory of God. That's a solid right hook in the enemy's face. And so let it start with us. Fancy houses, nice cars, sweet job titles, early retirement, long vacations are not worth neglecting your kids over in an unhealthy way. I'm not saying those things are in and of themselves bad. But if it's that or, I think our kids would choose us. Main disciplers of our kids. That's the goal. And so here are a few practical. When you think of the verse, do not provoke your children to anger. Here's a few practical things on not angering our kids. I'll pause here and I'll quickly say, I understand everybody has a different parenting philosophy. And sometimes parents get a little crazy when pastors start speaking into parenting philosophy. Do you? Do you, but also, <laughs> I know I need some help growing and being a better father to my kids. And so receive this with humility. Here are some possible causes of angering our kids. Number one, failing to take into account the fact that they are kids. Why do they act so crazy? Why are they so impulsive? Why are they so wild? Why do they jump off the shelf and do like a front flip onto the couch? Why do they break the sunroom window two weeks before you close on your house to move? <laughs> well, because they're, they're kids. <laughs> That's what they do. Don't fail to take into account they're just kids. They're not, you know, not, not doing this, but they haven't lived on the earth for 30 or so years. I mean, my kids... One of them has only been here for almost just one or three or five or seven. Like, they're kids. Don't, don't forget to take that into account. Number two, comparing them to others. Comparison. And this just hit me. Some, even comparing them to you. Well, when I was a kid, I never, I, I am the worst at that. When I was a kid, I never, like, comparing, like, they're a different person. They're a different human being. Don't do that in an unhealthy way. It can provoke them to anger. 
Number three, disciplining them inconsistently. Now again, you can, whatever you do in your home, you can define that word discipline however you want. Obviously with some boundaries. Read the Bible, I don't know. Disciplining them inconsistently. That they get in trouble for something one time and then not the next three times, but then all of a sudden they get in trouble for it again. No wonder they're confused. That's frustrating. They get frustrated. Number four, failing to express approval even at small accomplishments. Kids crave our validation as mamas and daddies. Number five, failing to express our love to them. Number six, disciplining them for reasons other than willful disobedience and defiance. You're an Alabama fan? Are you kidding me? No, I'm just kidding. I just made that. I I don't know why. Oh, I don't know why that popped in my head. I'm sorry. Number seven. Pressuring them to pursue our goals, not their own. Now, if they don't have any goals, give them some help. Might be yours, but over time, maybe they have their own. Number eight, withdrawing love from them or overprotecting them. These are eight things. The list could go on and on, but these were the most helpful, in my opinion. And so what's the result of such actions? Children go angry. Or in the words of Colossians 3.21, discouraged. Paul says, fathers, same thing. Do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. We should be aiming at encouragement, not discouragement. And so as we avoid those things, our, our goal now is to pursue bringing up our kids in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So what does that mean? Just hear this. Give your kids Jesus. Just give them Jesus. Show them Jesus. Point them to Jesus. Live out your walk with Jesus in front of them. Bring them along with you in the journey of following Jesus. Read the Bible together as a family. Get planted and serve in the church together. Worship together. Pray together. And that's just a fraction of discipling them. Teach them practical things. How to brush their teeth. How to be a godly man. How to be a godly woman. What it means to be a great citizen of Murfreesboro and what that can look like. What it means to steward your money well. What it means to discover your gifting and grow in that. And on and on and on. Again, I'm not just solely talking to spiritual. I think a whole disciple of Jesus is the practical and the spirit. It's all of it. Body, soul, and spirit. And we get to help our kids to learn this. And so the last thing I'll say, all of this that I've said, it can help cultivate and create a healthy home that glorifies God. Healthy homes lead to healthy marriages and healthy kids. And that's what my pastor's heart is burdened to help you create. And I know my heart pales in comparison to the father's heart. The Father's heart is that our homes would be healthy for his glory. Amen? Okay. That's what I felt so strongly led by the Spirit to hit on hard. That's 80% of the sermon, 85%. But the verses continue. And so 
Let's finish out this book, reading verses 5 through 9 very quickly. Paul says, Bondservants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service, as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he is a bondservant or is free. Verse 9, masters, do the same to them. And stop your threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and that there is no partiality with him. So first things first, is the Bible condoning slavery? No, absolutely not. Some people use this passage of scripture to say God condones slavery. That is completely false. Paul was writing to a time and context where slavery did exist. However, slavery in the Roman world is not to minimize it, but slavery in this context is entirely different than slavery in our recent history. So Paul's not condoning slavery, absolutely not. The scripture as a whole, I mean, even just in these verses, it, it shows you that this is not God's heart. Paul argued, again, reading all of his letters as a whole, Paul argued for the equal value of the human. Husbands, wives, equal value. Parents, kids, equal value. Masters, slaves, equal value. Which is why he closes the verse by saying, hey, masters, by the way, stop your threatening knowing that the father, he's your master and theirs. And he has no partiality within him. So just in case you've heard this argument before, that is not at all what Paul is saying. So to con contextualize what Paul is really trying to get at, the same principles here really apply to our modern-day employer-employee relationship, your workplace, with our leaders and our bosses, with those that are leaders or are employers. These principles apply to you. So there's two simple thoughts to point out, two things. Number one, we should do our work as unto Christ, and we should lead like Christ. This is what Paul was getting at. We should work as if we weren't working just for our bosses or our leaders. We should do our jobs as unto the Lord. As a sacrifice to him, we should work respectfully and with integrity. We should work hard. We should model out our faith in our jobs. We should get along with others we work with. Obviously, if you work in a hostile or unethical place, then pray in another job. But for the most part, most of our jobs are fine, so work for Jesus. Work for Jesus. Sometimes that might be all you have. I don't want to go to work. I don't want to do this. I don't want to lead these people. Well, work as unto Christ. Know that you've been placed where you work by God and his sovereignty to be a minister of the gospel. Again, it drives me crazy. Maybe not in everyone, but I see it a lot. People, they say, I'm a Christian. And they contextualize their faith predominantly in the church building or maybe in their home. But then like the workplace is over here. And then like, they, go, they go to work and they're like the biggest jerk ever. 
and they're like blasting everybody. They're lazy. It's like all of life, all of life for the glory of God, even your workplace. This is what Paul was trying to say. Don't be people pleasers. Don't do things merely for eyes, merely, merely, however you say that, for eye service, but, for your, but from your heart, do everything with a pure motive for the glory of God. Get it? Got it? Work as if you're working for Christ himself. But then lead like Christ. Some of you have the privilege to be managers or business owners, or you are an employer in different contexts and different shapes and sizes. Some of you have the ability to be that. And did you know that that position was given to you by God? He has placed you there to have influence on people, to model what it's like to lead in the way of Christ. But to lead like Christ, again, it means avoid being hostile. Show respect and humility and integrity and gentleness. Yes, be firm. Sometimes you got to lead the people. Sometimes they need to be spurred along. That's okay, but do so in a Christ-honoring way. This is what the Apostle Paul was getting at. Amen. And then we get to the armor of God. So what I'm going to do is I'm just going to read it. I'm going to give one thought on it, and then we're going to stand and we're going to close our service. So read this with me. We're going to close out what has been a six-week study on this book of Ephesians. So verse 10, finally, that word's on purpose. Paul's concluding now. Finally, this is the last thing I got to say. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to, to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand firm, Verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Verse 18, praying at all times in the spirit and with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me and opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. And then the closing greetings, the final greetings, verse 21 so that you may also know how I am and what I'm doing. Let me go to my computer here. Tihikos. That's how you say it. Tihikos. That's Logos Bible software. You can check me. Don't judge me. I said it correctly. 
It doesn't look like it should say that, but Tehikos, the beloved brother and faithful minister of the Lord, will tell you everything. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. Peace be to the brothers and sisters and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Get grace be with all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. And that's Ephesians 6 and therefore the whole book. So here's my final thoughts on this. You ready? You ready? We need spiritual armor because our fight is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers and authorities and the cosmic powers of darkness and evil, basically spiritual forces. Again, what this is showing us, and, and please, please hear this. People are not the enemy. They just aren't. The spirit behind it all is our enemy. Satan and demons, they are our enemy. And unfortunately, the Bible makes it clear that apart from Christ, people are in bondage to the kingdom of darkness. And unless Christ sets them free and begins the process of transformation, these people do sinful, broken, dark things because why wouldn't they? They are in bondage to their sin and in the kingdom of darkness. Now, what I'm not saying is that, that, that what they do is excusable. They deserve what's coming to them. Justice, evil must be punished. But you have to see that people in and of themselves are not our enemy. It's, it's the spiritual, like Paul is arguing, we do not wage war against flesh and blood, but against the spiritual, the kingdom of darkness. And so therefore, because we are in a spiritual war, you and I are not going out in the streets with swords ready to fight people. What we have is this sword. We have the word of God. We have prayer. We have faith. And I know in our Western minds, we've been so taught in tangible, not dogging Western thought, but we have so lost the reality of the spiritual. I want to see it. I just had a conversation this past week with us, with a bunch of crazy fallen people, and I just don't see it. I just, I got to see it. I'm like, You've totally lost that for thousands and thousands and thousands of years, so many people, even non-believers, understood that there is a spiritual side, things beyond what you can see. Now, I know it would, for us, we want the real, we want this, but this, the Word of God, the thing that you and I know, it's in our hearts I don't know about you, but there are mornings for no reason where there is this resistance to reading the word, to praying. Why? Why? Why is it that this and prayer, just, we'll just keep it at that, prayer and the word. 
If you analyze your life, tell me those two things don't have the most resistance to. They're probably low on your list of discipline. Now, not all of us, but I know in me, prayer and the word, resistance. Maybe I'm the only one. Why? Because we don't wage war against flesh and blood. Our fight is spiritual, and the enemy does not want you to know this word. He does not want you to become disciplined in prayer because he knows that when you are disciplined in those things, you're actually fighting. You're actually fighting in the war. Yeah. All right. All right. So a practical response to knowing we're in a spiritual war is that if we pray and trust in the Lord and we believe and we live out what the Bible says, we will be able, according to Ephesians, we'll be able to stand. Basically, if we just do what the Bible tells us to do, Paul promises we will stand in a day of compromise. We will stand firm against the enemy. So here are a few questions you can ask yourself. You can summarize the armor of God in that phrase if you just read the Bible and you do what it says. Read the Bible, do what it says. The belt of truth. Are we choosing to live by the principles and teachings of the Bible? The breastplate of righteousness. Are we fully repentant of and moving away from sin? The feet of readiness. As we, are we living in the promises of God? Are we ready to act or react at any time? Meaning share our faith that we have in Christ. The shield of faith. Are we rejecting doubt and staying clear of temptation? The helmet of salvation. Are we living in obedience, grace, and security of God while looking forward to our eternal home? The sword of the Spirit. Are we using the Bible as a weapon against evil? Again, we, we have to get this. You throw the best right hook to the enemy's face. I mean, like a knockout blow when you resist temptation. And you reject sin and you live a life of holiness. You reject bowing down to culture. That is like a punch in the face to the enemy. And again, when you get the word inside of you and you reject doubt, when the enemy comes, you're a horrible parent. You're, you'll never be forgiven. And you put the hand in the face of the enemy. No, I'm saved by grace. And, and I have new mercies every month. I mean, you just challenge back. The enemy is going to come. This is what Ephesians is all about. Paul is shouting to people, and by the Spirit of God, the same truth supersedes time, and it's the same truth still speaking in 2023, 2023 saying, you're saved. Christ died for you. The payment has been paid. Now rest in that, and now parallel to that, reject culture, live different, and preach the gospel to others. And the best right hook you can throw is what he finishes with by saying it's the Spirit. Read the Bible, do what it says, and pray. Read the Bible, do what it says, and pray. Say it one more time. Read the Bible, do what it says, and pray. <laughs> it's that simple. Yet, it can be tough. And that's why we need one another. 
That's why we need this family, this body, spurring one another on. So the last phrase I'll say, and then we're done. If we will put on the armor, which simply means reading the Bible and applying it to our lives, we will be able to not only fend off evil, but overcome it through the Spirit. Amen? Let's pray together. Let's stand. You may not like this, but I just want to pause a minute. This morning as I was preparing, I'm like, how do I close? How do I close? How do I close? What do I do? And the Holy Spirit was like, just wait till you get there. (laughs) Just wait. And so I just want to pause. Man, maybe just close your eyes. Maybe lift your hands or kneel or whatever a worshipful posture is for you. Let's just collectively just pause before the Lord and let's ask him how he wants to close. And so we just are still before you, Lord. God, we know you're here. We know you're in this place. We know, Lord, that this chapter, ultimately this entire book of Ephesians, Lord, it's you. You inspired Paul to write it. And Lord, thank you that, yes, Ephesians meant something to them. The same truth is for us today. And so, Lord, all of us are in such different walks of life. All of us are in different seasons. Some of us are in high school. Some of us in college. Some of us are young adults. Some of us are single. Some of us are married. Some of us have kids. Some of us are grandparents. God, all of us, we're in such different walks. God, thank you that your heart and what you need can be delivered to each individual person by you. So Holy Spirit, we just ask Whatever it is that you brought everybody here today, would you just let it be known? God, some needed encouragement. Some needed just a a, a reminder that they can keep going. That you may find yourself in a hard season, but you can keep going. You can keep going. The Spirit is with you. He wants to strengthen you. God, some are in the room and they are struggling maybe they even identify their home right now maybe maybe even the voice of the enemy discouraged them when they read the phrase healthy homes for the glory of God and they look at their home and they say my home is not that and they felt shame they felt discouragement lord i pray right now would you encourage would you clothe them would you give them the strength they need the truth that they need that you are the god of redemption Things may not look how they should, but praise the Lord for redemption. Marriages may have separated, and you may find yourself as a single parent. You should not feel shame. You should praise the Lord for redemption. Though it's not the way it should have been, that the Lord can come and meet you there and redeem it. 
So God, I pray against shame. And Lord, I just pray that your will be done. God, let us, every home for your glory, whether it's just us living there or maybe we live there with friends, maybe we have kids, maybe we have family, whatever the case, whoever is in our home, let it be homes that glorify you. That's what we pray today, God. Thank you, God. Thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. We praise you, God. We, we love you so much. We pray everything we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Yeah. Awesome. Well, that is the book of Ephesians. If you need further ministry, man, we're here. We'll be up front. A few of us uh, staff, pastors, or leaders, whoever. We, if you need further ministry, we'd be glad to minister to you and pray with you. Um, but we love you so much. Next week, we have a, a special guest with us, Mohan Babu, a missionary that we support in India. He's going to come, and you don't want to miss it. He's awesome. Uh, so come next Sunday. It's going to be a great one. And we love you guys, and we'll see you soon.